From the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network, this is a very new series about American politics and most significantly, the American presidential election in 2020. It's a new branching out for the series and each week we're going to bring you a 30-minute mini-episode with our US correspondent, Marion McKeown. Marion, you'll know, of course, from uh, The Last Word with Matt Cooper. She is the US correspondent for the Sunday Business Post and formerly the US editor for the Sunday Tribune. She's also written for The Guardian, The New York Times and The Irish Times and is a regular contributor to RT and the BBC. She was there for 9-11 and the presidencies of Bush, Obama and, of course, Trump. So no one's better positioned than to give us a calm and considered view of what is taking place in that country right now. It's a great pleasure to be able to bring this to you as a bonus series. If you'd like to hear it on a regular basis, then come over to patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad, where this series will be broadcast in full and sent to your phone every single week. But for now, this will be the episode that goes out on iTunes and all other platforms, and uh, regularly so over on Patreon. It's such such a joy to be able to do this. I'm so happy we could, and it's only thanks to those patrons. So if you'd like to support us in this endeavour and you'd like to hear these conversations uh, more often, every single week, from here right through to the election, please sign up, patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Thrigo! Marion McKeown, it's fantastic to have you on this new venture for Irishman Abroad. And I guess my first question has to be this. Tell me that after everything we've seen and after the number of things that have gone on fire since he took office, tell me these people are not going to elect Donald Trump again. You know, Jarlath, I wish I could tell you that, but I can't because... And I think we may have chatted about this before. At, you know, Joe Biden, I think it's a given at this stage that Joe Biden will very likely win the popular vote. But because of the way the American election system works and, and where it all boils down to six or seven states that are swing votes, and that's where the electoral college votes count. And whoever gets the most electoral college votes, whoever gets over 270 electoral college votes wins. Now, this to me is a system that is beyond bewildering. And mm. I, I've spoken to a number of Democratic strategists about this. And I always say to them, you know, Al Gore won the popular vote mm. by a small margin, admittedly, in 2000. Half a million or thereabouts. But 
George Bush became president. You go 16 years later, Hillary Clinton wins the popular vote by three million um, and Donald Trump becomes president. That to me is a subversion of democracy yeah. at its most fundamental. But the Americans and I, you know, and I, I hate to do this what about and you know, if it were. But do you think if two Republican presidents were beaten by Democrats mm. in this, in, who, who um, if you flipped it in, in less than two decades, do you think there would still be an electoral college? I don't think so. So I really think that it, it's, it's something which is completely obsolete. It was never democratic in the first place. It should have been gone decades and decades, arguably hundreds of years ago, but we still have it. And um, Donald Trump's voters, this is the thing to remember. When You know, he has a number of skills that are undeniable, and one of them is being able to read people and read a public mood. He's a bit off key on that one at the moment, but we mm. get back to that. Uh, when Donald Trump said back in 2015 that he could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and his supporters would still support him, he was spot on. He wasn't kidding at all because Donald Trump supporters have nowhere else to go in this election. They really don't. They're not. They they are so entrenched and they're so tribal. Now, a lot of them are people who I think vote for Donald Trump out of desperation, it, you know, with good intentions, people who are good people, who weren't racist, who weren't whatever, you know, that, um, and they just really thought, believe that he'd bring back blue collar jobs. Well, that didn't pan out so well over the last four years. But there are a lot of other people who support Donald Trump who are white nationalists, who support him because they don't want Mexicans coming into the country. They don't want immigrants coming in. And they absolutely sing from that hymn sheet. There is nobody else in American politics that will give them that sort of a, a, a really unvarnished xenophobia. And, and, and Donald Trump reflects their views and he endorses them. So they are going to stick with Donald Trump to the bitter end. So Joe Biden, weak candidate. I think that Joe Biden now, it's it's really been a bit of a blessing for him, this coronavirus, because he's not a great campaigner. He really isn't. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the less people see of him, I, I almost think the better for Joe Biden. And he's a decent man. And, you know, he is in, in many respects, you know, a, a good man, but he's a weak candidate. Um, I, the Democrats are saddled with a very weak candidate and there's no two ways around it. How is that possible, though? Right. You must look at that and think, oh, my God, if ever there was a time for anyone with a bit of charisma and ability to spar, to publicly spar with someone like essentially you're preparing a fighter for these presidential debates where this guy can be taken out and mortified in, in public. And we both know that he proved that that's not as easy as you might think. But oh, no. surely that's the priority, though, that that Hillary proved that she wasn't up to that task and that she was maybe a little too polite in those moments. And, you know, like Lord knows the deck was stacked against her because if she went in hard, she was shrill. If she didn't, mm -hmm. she was weak. So surely if you're yeah. the Democrats, you are panning for the gold. How is this the, the nugget that they came up with at the end of that? Be you know, I think they bottled it. I really do. I think they got nervous and they were afraid if they went too far left that they'd lose the moderates. And if they went... The other little known dirty secret, Jared, and I, I, I'm just bouncing around the place here a little bit, is that... Mm. 
I suspect very strongly, and I kind of do know in a couple of cases, it's not just diehard blue-collar voters who are voting for Trump and the rural guys and the guys who wear the cowboy hats and won't wear the masks. It's not just those guys. A lot of people who would probably consider themselves liberal have done very well financially under the Donald Trump four years. They look at their 401ks, their retirement funds, and they're up massively. The stock market is up massively. And they may think, well, yes, I don't agree with him. Uh, You know, I'm not a racist. I don't agree with what he says, these awful things he says, but they support his policies. And it's, it's, you know, if you've got an extra couple of million in the bank, it's amazing Mm -hmm. how I would imagine, not that I'll ever know, but but (laughs) that you can rationalize to yourself reasons you do things or don't do things. And so, I, I mean, that is now, I've completely lost track of your question. So, so remind me and get me back to it. Yeah, well, it was it was really how how we arrived then at Joe With Biden. Biden. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying there, though. And I do think that that's something that Irish people listening to this need to take on board, because you can often hear Irish people going, oh, sure, Americans are stupid and anybody that votes for Donald Trump's a racist. But it's more nuanced than that. I get that from it's what you're saying. It's much more nuanced. It's it's so much more nuanced. And I think that that is the point. As I said, even people who don't have a lot of money, who may find they've got an extra 10 or 20 grand, you know, as a result of tax cuts or as a result of getting more money um, because th- their wages went up slightly. Now, of course, all of this has been torpedoed by mm. the coronavirus and by the state the economy's in at the moment. So people may be less forgiving now. But it's as you say, it's not just the the, the stereotypical uh, racists and rednecks who vote for Donald Trump. There there are a lot of people, the evangelicals absolutely um, are fiercely loyal to him and they won't vote for anybody else because he has delivered for them. He's delivered 300 conservative judges to the federal benches, including two to the Supreme Court. That is huge. But back to Biden. Um, yeah, as I say, I think that they bottled it. But, you know, a lot... Really, the person they needed to be in the race, and of course, it's always very easy to do it from, you know, the, the Monday morning quarterback. They need somebody like Andrew Cuomo, the New York um, governor, who is in his own way prone to autocratic tendencies. You know, he is no perfect candidate, but he's an excellent leader and he has shown himself in a time of crisis with the coronavirus where New York was slammed. My God, you know, the, the, literally the 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 visuals from New York, and I was only there briefly during this, but, you know, the the dead bodies Mm. literally piled up in the streets, the refrigerated trucks running out of space, the morgues that were putting them outside in, in, you know, I mean, New York was, more than 30,000 people died in a very short space of time. Half a million people were infected. The city, the state was overwhelmed, and Andrew Cuomo dealt with that in an exemplary display of leadership. He was empathic, um, but he was tough where he had to be tough. And, he, and you know, somebody like that is, you know, he's a boy from Queens, too. He's not intimidated by Donald Trump. I suspect he would relish the battle against Donald mm. Trump, but he didn't run. He didn't put his um, he didn't put his hat in the ring, partly because this uh, 2020 was seen as the year that a woman candidate would break through. And there were a lot of very smart women who were in the running, but some of them didn't deliver and some of them just um, were overtaken by by events and by, I would say, by various biases. I would, I would cite Elizabeth Warren as one of those incredibly capable, certainly smarter and more, more energetic than Joe Biden, but she was seen as too progressive. And, and, you know, so she was bumped out. More than anything, the Democrats wanted to win and they believed that Joe Biden was the safest bet. Okay. But this is, this is a new playing field now, right? This yep. is like... 
everything that you've said there makes perfect sense. And I think it's really important that we hear that point about how much he has delivered for certain people who might quietly say it on a Saturday night after a few beers in their private bar <laughs> in their home. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the game done changed, right? The the uh, mm -hmm. this thing that has ravaged the earth in the last three months yeah. changes everything. So to a degree, the Democrats chose the guy they thought would be best pre-coronavirus. Is it possible that they just have the wrong guy now for this, for this situation? And secondly, the second part of my question is, how can the public not see that with everything that's changed and the awful manner with which he's dealt with it and the things he said and the lack of empathy he's shown, how, how can that not torpedo the Trump battleship? Well, you know, I think if anything does that that and his response to the death of George Floyd and all the other people, Breonna Taylor, Rayshon Brooks, all, all of these people uh, has been so tone deaf. But let's deal first of all with the coronavirus. And you're right, because this was something. And, you know, it is the old Winston Churchill thing, events, dear boy events. Nobody saw this coming. But the problem for Donald Trump is that when they saw it coming down the track and coming fast, they, they did nothing. They, you know, they, they really didn't take the necessary steps. So I think coronavirus exposed a lot of his bluster and it showed him for the sort of leader that he is who can only work in chaos and only work by pitting people against each other and who really lacks authentic, genuine leadership skills. So I think Americans have been very disillusioned by that. You also um, throw in the fact that here here at the moment where there are probably there are about two and a quarter million people who that we know um, have contracted the coronavirus. There are at least 120,000 who have died from it. Now that 120,000, anybody I've spoken to, whether it's an epidemiologist or health experts, they all acknowledge this is an undercount. This is an undercount because people count these things in different ways. So you have you have that and the colossal cost of the American economy and the 40 million people out of work and so many people are, who are relying on food banks. Now you, you put all that there and you say Joe Biden is ill-equipped, I would think, to deal with such a massive economic challenge. But where he might work, it's almost like the moment has come to Biden while, as he sits in his basement, mm. <laughs> quietly behaving himself. But with, with the, what America wants at the moment and you know, to describe the, the roiling of the country in, in the last couple of weeks because of the racial injustice, because of the police brutality, because of the tone deaf response from Donald Trump, there is a momentum that I feel, and I feel that we're living in a moment of history at the moment. And, you know, you probably heard a lot about violence and looting and all these things and rioters. These um, marches were overwhelmingly peaceful. And I, I really cannot stress that enough. You know, I was at marches in Hollywood and down in Santa Monica and in LA County and further south where there were tens and tens of thousands of people. They were playing Bob Marley. They were playing the Beastie Boys. Great soundtracks. Everybody had posters that were they could be, they were angry but some of them were witty. They were funny. People were mostly wearing masks but it was people from 
all across the spectrum. It was black people, it was white people, it was Asian people, it was Arab American people, it was everyone. And I think you don't get change until everyone buys in. And I think so many Americans at this point are at a point where they're tired of not just the police brutality, but the insensitive response that has come from Washington over it. And I think that Joe Biden is somebody who is a conciliatory figure. He's like your granddad or your uncle, you know, your great uncle who'll come and he'll buy you an ice cream and he'll give you a hug and whatever, you know, he's he's sort of he's more soothing to America's soul at the moment, I think, than Donald Trump. And people who look at Trump now and think, oh, my God, do we really need another four years of this chaos and division and mm. hate and ugliness? They might think that Uncle Joe is is a better alternative. So I think that almost the moment has come round for Biden, where I would say now, as a result, mainly of all the protests and the upset in America, because this is a fundamentally good, decent country. And I think Americans are really distressed by the vitriol and the hate and and the division that is coming from the top. Also the corruption, also when you have an attorney general who will act like a mafia fixer. You know, I mean, people are tired of it. So I would say that, wait and see, Donald Trump could win. But so could Joe Biden now. I, that's Talk about hedging your bets. If it's not mm. one, it'll be the other. Well, but I, well, I think like, it's open. I think it's wide open. And like you say, it is. we're at a unique time because yeah. it's like uh, lifting these lockdowns and mm-hmm. the wave of or the second wave or spike that they're now in denial of. I mean, I had Samantha Power on the podcast the other day and she pointed to the scepticism about science and evidence and actual global cooperation as being kind of just the tip of the iceberg of gross incompetence that is this administration Mm -hmm. and that were it not for coronavirus, we wouldn't see the depth and the extent of it. And the reason why I asked the first question I did, because with the death of George Floyd thrown into that, the murder, Mm -hmm. effectively a lynching in public, it made me go, what the fuck has to happen here for there to be mass movement towards removing this man from office? Uh, So it's heartening to hear you say that there is a sense of momentum. There, you know, there is. And and absolutely, the, the coronavirus was the great leveller because it did peel back the cover. You know, uh, while the economy was roaring, Donald Trump could have skated to victory in November quite conceivably. Uh, but, but this didn't just deflate the economy. It showed that the whole thing was a house of cards. So I think really, if, if I were to pick a moment, and you know, I remember like 9-11, there are moments where you feel the sort of the chill almost of history where you know that things are different. I do think that George Floyd's death in particular and all the other deaths that have happened in the last weeks mm. and not to forget them but that, that that has been a tipping point now one of the ways that has manifested is um, obviously Donald Trump, the, the military Donald Trump striding down the, the uh, Washington with, with the, the top military commander Mark Milley in fatigues and by the way the military people who I've spoken to at quite a senior level have very little time for, for Mark Milley and they think now he did apologise but it's it's like 
it feels like American institutions that Americans have relied on, like the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, the military, to be apolitical and to protect the country are crumbling. And I think that this has spurred things further as well, that the way Donald Trump responded to the protests, to these peaceful protesters, uh, was just so disproportionate and so over the top that people are really questioning, do we still have a democracy in America? Now, as I say, I, I, I think that it's a mixture of people are now fearful for the institutions, they're aware of the incompetence, and they also are sickened by just the, the lack of empathy, by the cruelty, by, by Donald Trump, you know, having, you know, not only does he not want to listen to protesters who are legitimately and peacefully protesting, he calls them, you know, anarchists and looters and rioters and thugs and, you know, pick, pick an abusive adjective and, and it'll be there on his Twitter feed somewhere. So I do think that people have sort of, they've kind of had enough. And one of the things today that happened, or last night actually, Donald Trump has been boasting forever about, about um, since he became president, if he endorses a candidate, that's it, they're in. That if you haven't got Donald Trump's endorsement, you mm. can't win. Now, and that has really kept Republicans in line because they do know that if they go against Trump, mainly they will get primaried, um, that, that which, which means just for your your listeners that another candidate will come in and challenge them for their seat from the same party but from the right of the party and they'll usually win. Now Donald Trump endorsed a woman in South Carolina with Mark Meadows who's now his chief of staff and said she's going to be Mark Meadows' replacement because he created a vacancy when he became Trump's chief of staff. Mark Meadows is from the far right of the Republican Party. Anyway, he and Donald Trump handpicked his successor and the the, uh, voters in North Carolina absolutely rejected her. Uh, By 66% of votes they went with a 24-year-old guy, a Trump supporter but an unknown. Like he says he will support Donald Trump. So that was one of the one of the, and it's happened a couple of times recently that politicians that Donald Trump wholeheartedly endorse don't make it past the finishing line. And conversely, politicians that Donald Trump has condemned have one in particular in Kentucky have won their primaries. So it's as though he's losing the Midas touch mm-hmm. within the the Republican Party as well. I think things are shifting. It's you know. It's, it's it's sort of a slow progress and it's like the joke about how, how you go bankrupt well, very slowly and then suddenly very quickly and I really think at the moment that with Donald Trump it's it's as though his stranglehold on the Republican Party which he's had, you know, it's taken forever for it to chip away but now it seems to be happening. So, but the Republican Party, I don't know where they go. Um, it, uh, Post-Trump, will it be Tom Cotton and Donald Trump Jr., very likely, or will another party have to, you know, to cater for moderate conservatives, will that have to come out of nowhere? A party of, say, Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski, those kind of people. Sometimes when I hear Boris Johnson or one of his people talk, certainly for my wife and I, I think growing up Irish and sceptical of authority in general or conscious of spin, I hear them and I go, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. I can, particularly in COVID, I say, oh, I get it. I I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to leak this information out so that people aren't that mad when this happens or Mm -hmm. uh, spin it in such a way that, oh, well, we tried it to me with Trump. And from this distance, it seems like he's got a handful of tricks, right? A bag of go to moves like, you know, a limited basketball player. He has his up and under. He has his fake left go right. And he does them over and over again. And Kung Flu is one of them. It's 
incendiary language to distract from the things that we should be asking them about. Are people becoming wise to these tricks? Well, you know, I think I like the media does tend to go after every distraction that mm. he throws every time he's, that, that we, you know, and I, all of us, we tend to go racing after it. But you always have to ask when Donald Trump puts out an inflammatory treat, tweet, I beg your pardon, or uh, an insane executive order, you have to ask, what's he trying to distract us from? Mm. And that's always the first question that you need to ask. But at the moment, you know, child, he sort of reminds me of, you know, at the, that rally in, in Tulsa in Oklahoma, it was like an aging sort of cabaret comedian mm. trying out new material that wasn't working. You almost cringe for him. And, you know, this, this Kung flu, it's not, it's not even witty. It's not even funny. I'm not saying it would be okay if it was, but you know what? Smart humour can can go a long way. You know, like he's trying out, it's like old mother-in-law jokes. He's just rolling out. Donald Trump in 2016 had a shock and awe advantage. You know, he came down those steps, like the things he said, everyone's jaws were on the ground. And a lot of people kind of liked it for the shock value. That shtick is over now. People are, we, we see his game. It's like you say, we see what he's trying to do. People are sort of immune to the, the shock value of Donald Trump, although he does continue <laughs> to shock people to a degree. But, you know, as I said, that act, we, we've seen his act and, and, you know, his new material isn't that great. So let I don't know where that will go in terms of 2020, but he, he really does, um, I don't know if you saw any of the of the, the rally uh, in Tulsa. Yeah. Just this kind of meandering mess. It, like, literally like somebody who stood up to make a toast at a wedding, had had about 20 glasses of whatever too many and didn't know when to sit down and shut up. And you could feel, even though the crowd was only, it was only a third capacity, but you could feel the drain in, in the audience's attention because, you know, and, and try, like the, the, the supposed comedy sketch about his walk where he was leaning over, it's not funny. You know, he has lost because he is a a gifted communicator. Whether you like him or not, he really is. He knows how to hold a stage. He knows how to hold an audience. And uh, it seems that he's run out of tricks, like you're saying, that he's run out of steam and, and, and the energy to power this act forward. There's another thought that occurred to me while watching that ramble. And that is that I think sometimes we're a little blissfully unaware of exactly how much work goes into one of those speeches. And I'm I'm absolutely fascinated with uh, hearing speech writers who've worked before mm-hmm. for different uh, leaders and just how on it they need to be 24 seven coming up with essentially material bits, ideas, mm-hmm. uh, phrasing punchlines and in the moment stuff that speaks to the hearts and minds. And it made me think of some stuff that I heard about like quite a while ago about enemies within the ranks, that there were people actively plotting within his office to get him out. Now, I don't know if anything came of that, And certainly this John Bolton book doesn't reveal anything that way. But it it, it did make me wonder because, you know, someone, Marion, sent him up there knowing this is what he's going to do. Yeah, you know what? I actually, 
two things there, Charlotte. Firstly, Donald Trump refuses to stay on script, especially at a rally like that. He thinks that he is a better communicator and he's right a lot of the time and that he certainly, you know, he knows more than the generals, he knows more than the economists, he knows more than the astronauts, he knows more than everyone. And and by God, does he think he knows more than the scientists, you know. So I think that he, no matter, you know, Shakespeare could come back and write his speeches for him and he would think that he could improve on them. Mm. And so what he does at a rally like that, he wants more and more adulation. And I've seen, I've been to dozens of those rallies for my for my sins, like dozens and dozens of them. And he wants the audience. And if he doesn't feel he's getting sufficient applause and response, he'll go off on a tangent. He'll go off on something that he thinks either worked before or he'll try something new. And, you know, sometimes it will work with his audience and sometimes it won't. But with that speech in, in Tulsa, a lot of that was just Donald Trump going off script completely and really failing to connect with the audience that was there. And I, th- I think, and the more he sensed that, the more he started clowning it up and, and acting the buffoon and doing stupid impersonations and, and what have you. So I don't, you know, I don't believe that, that there's anybody in the White House who's really trying to, to pull any kind of a coup. I think that Donald Trump has a lot of true believers and a lot of these people are in there for their own reasons. Hmm. John Bolton, a case in point, you know, John Bolton was a hard right neoconservative in the way before the Bush-Cheney era. And the other thing, just while I'm on it, is none of these people who surround Donald Trump were born fully fledged, grey haired, <laughs> you know, in in expensive suits and arrived in the White House, they all cut their teeth in previous Republican administrations, in the Reagan administration, in the Bush one and two administrations. So Donald Trump didn't create people like John Bolton. They came along and they saw Donald Trump and they grabbed their moment. Hmm. So John Bolton never got past UN um, ambassador, really, because he was a difficult person to work with. Even Republicans didn't like him. Uh, And then Donald Trump is running out of options because he's already fired three national security advisors. And both Bolton sees his moment and he's in there for his own reasons because he always wanted that job. And, you know, so it's you make a deal with the devil. Uh, You know, somebody like James Mattis, he was asked as a military general to become defence secretary. You don't refuse a request from your commander in chief. So, you know, I see why he was in there. I see why H.R. McMaster was in there because and they probably felt that they were doing the best thing for the country. But a lot of people who have worked for Trump, are there to further their own agendas. And if Mm. Trump will help them to do that, they'll go along for the ride. So I think we can't hold him responsible for everything. As I say, I think that there are a lot of Washington is a political town. People see their moment. And, you know, the second that Donald Trump is no longer useful, they will jettison him without a second thought. You know, so there's no loyalty in politics, especially in Washington. Well, Mary McKeown, it's brilliant to have had this chat and I'm so happy that uh, you've come on board to do this regularly because uh, I think we're going to have we're going to need you. (laughs) Well, uh, it's going to be it's going to be a long, hot summer. I can't tell you that. Well, look, take care of yourself, stay safe and we'll speak to you next week. Thanks so much. And you too, John. Thank you very much. 
So that's Marion McKeown. Uh, as I said, these episodes will go out every single week for our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. If you'd like to hear these half an hour chats once a week from now, right through to the election, please sign up over at patreon.com forward slash Irishmanabroad. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is jigsaw.ie. They are doing Trojan work to help with the mental health emergency that we're seeing for young people in Ireland right now. Jigsaw for years have been going into communities, setting up workshops and helping young people attain the skills they'll need to manage their mental health as life goes on. I mean, we're all finding it hard. We all remember how hard it was to be kids and to be young people back home. Well, Jigsaw are attacking this with the root source and helping young people prepare for what's ahead of them. If you can head over and support them, that would be great. Jigsaw.ie forward slash now. My thanks to Brian Connolly for his production on the episode to Tina and Mikey for making it all possible and of course to Marion McKeown who we'll talk to next week I got the strap I gotta carry him yeah yeah I'ma go into this yeah yeah this is gorilla yeah yeah I'ma go get the bag yeah yeah or I'ma get the pad yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like, yeah. yeah I'm so dull like, yeah Woo. We gon' blow like, yeah What I'm whipping up, look how I'm kicking up. I'm so pretty. I'm on Gucci. I'm so pretty. I'm on Giddy. Watch me move. This is Sally. That's a tool. On my Kodak. Follow and listen. You, you motherfuckers owe me.